Welcome back, everyone, to The Ops Show, where we bring you the trials and tribulations, the automations and collaborations from the world of DevOps and the developer experience. I'm your host, Tristan Pollack, with my co-host, CEO of CTO.ai, Kyle Campbell. And today, in our best show yet, we have Prosper Wangpa, and he is the co-founder and CTO of Avenue, and also was the founder and CTO of Peanut Labs. Uh, Prosper, thank you for coming on the show. Great to have you and really excited about some of the topics and things we're going to talk about today. Welcome. Sweet. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it, Tristan. So give us a little bit of background uh, about Avenue and what you've been working on uh, most recently, as well as, you know, your tell us your, your story and like how you got into, you know, the being a, a technical leader for startups, um, you know, Peanut Labs, Avenue, you know, how, how did that process happen? But yeah, happy yeah. to, would love to hear about both those things. Absolutely. So uh, yeah, co-founder of Avenue uh, built, built the team from the ground up. Avenue today is a, uh, a company that's focused on helping enterprise customers optimize their culture. Uh, the way we do that is through storytelling, uh, and we have a platform that uh, helps helps them drive through all these learning programs, while also gleaning data out of that data. You know, data that comes out of that. So as people do these learning programs, they leave comments, they share their own stories, and and so we look at that data, parse all of the text, parse all the video and try to uncover signals to help us understand where their culture is going. Uh, where Where is it going versus where they want it to go? Do they want people to, you know, be more trusting that they, than they actually are uh, or, or something different, right? So we, we actually glean that data that would otherwise only appear in surveys. We glean it automatically from communication that's happening within the team and communication uh, that they're sharing through their stories. And we use that uh, through NLP uh, algorithms to try to help them understand how to constantly optimize their culture. Wow. So that's Avenue. And uh, yeah, and if you go back uh, a few more years, uh, I've, I'm, I'm what you might call a serial entrepreneur. So Avenue would be my third startup. The first one was a social network way back when social networks oh, wow. were a thing. Now it's just Facebook, right? <laughs> there's, there's no industry anymore, literally. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was your but, uh, market with this, with this social network? Yeah, if you can believe it, back then, uh, Facebook had about 12 million users, and my network had about 6 million users. Oh, um, wow. yeah, so we were, we were pretty close to head to head and, um, what happened was, uh, Zuck ended up raising a lot more money and they took off and we got offered money and we, we said, okay, I will take that money <laughs> ended up getting acquired. Um, but, uh, so that was the first, the first startup I ever built. We were about 80 people back then and. Uh, we, we were tens of millions of users by the time we were acquired, actually became profitable, which was not a thing wow. back then. Yeah. Back then, it was, you just generate as much traffic as you could and, and then hope that you get acquired or um, 
try to sell advertising. And then second startup uh, is a company called Peanut Labs, where we took all of the different social networks that existed back then, lots of dating sites. I don't know if you remember Hot or Not, um, probably dating myself with that one, but uh, back in the, uh, this was in two th around 2007, 2008. It's not unlike, it's like the, the first iteration of the dating apps that exist today, like the Grinder, right? But back then it was hot or not. So you could just swipe through pictures and say, I like you or I don't like you. Mm -hmm. And if there's like the a original match, Tinder. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If there's a match, you could send them a virtual flower. You can't really just walk up to their house like you can today with Tinder. But uh, that's, that's an example of the social networks that we helped to monetize. Uh, they had all these fun mechanics, but then they couldn't charge people money. So what Peanut Labs did was we aggregated hundreds of these guys and we said, hey, if you send us your users, we'll send you some cash. So basically we would convert their users time, whether it was three minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes into real cash for, for, the, for the business owner, but also virtual currency for the user so that they could have more fun in their game, whatever it was. So Facebook credits was another platform that we served uh, back then when Facebook was experimenting with credits. We powered that. We enabled users to get free credits. And so at its peak, we were doing, I don't know, crazy amounts, like, you know, hundreds of millions of, of users on the platform through all these different networks and uh, millions of of transactions uh, on a daily basis uh, through that platform. So also got acquired and then I ended up at Avenue to build another startup with a really cool friend of mine that I've known for a long time, Daniel Jacobs. Tristan also happens to know that guy. But Yeah, uh, we, we, we met through some weird circumstances of like both being in the social impact space and I think really like over a decade ago. And I think I was helping with marketing and writing for his, his website, like everyone where it was doing di converting yep. digital actions into uh, real money for causes like, uh, you know, planting trees for filling out a survey and things like that. And that was kind of a hot mm -hmm. thing at that, that time in the social impact space of like, you know, really low friction, easy things that anyone could do online. Um, yep. Even passively. Uh, yeah, that was a, yeah, I'm, I'm happy you guys came together and then met you guys in San Francisco around 500 startups. Yep. And uh, it's yeah, it's great that you're still building this, you know, really powerful um, angle at, you know, in, in helping people improve their skills um, within a company. And I think that like that upskilling within companies and companies investing in that is really great. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's needed. I mean, um, everybody wants to grow and, and become the better version of themselves. So we just help them do that. How does the video yeah. play in? I, I'm not 100% clear on that. So am I, I'm recording a video and sending it to somebody. Is that generally the idea? Or if you elaborate a little bit more on Definitely. how the video is used to, as the primary driver of the, of the communication? Yeah, absolutely. So in Avenue, what uh, one of the things we do, uh, one of our products allows our customers who are in HR to develop a learning program. 
and that learning program would be a series of prompts. So let's say it's focused around, you know, leadership training or, you know, for new managers, you might issue a prompt that uh, focuses on one particular area of leadership training. So delegation, you know, share an example of how you've uh, leveraged delegation to make yourself more effective as a leader. And so people would share with each other. Um, and then our technology would parse through all of that and try to glean insights about, you know, how people are doing with that delegation. Uh, do, do they feel positively about it? Do they not? Do they think they're strong with it? Do they not? Uh, and how are others connecting uh, with delegation as a topic? That makes sense. Yeah, so I can either proactively use it to sort of build out a broader curriculum that I might use for like onboarding many people into my business consistently, or I could use it more ad hoc for more of like a micro training scenario where, hey, we have some initiative, we're really trying to move the needle exactly. in these sorts of skills. So let's create some content yep. around that. Mm -hmm. Great, that makes sense. Yep. And so, you know, going back to this, like, yeah, this upskilling, um, I think one thing that we've been chatting about already is is this idea of engineering values or building out values for your team and setting a foundation to you know what you really care about and how you want you know the team to interact with each other right. uh you know what are what are your thoughts on on, on creating that foundation uh the, these core values of a team yeah absolutely one of the things about culture that often is overlooked is um, culture really simply defined is the way that we work, right? When a group of people come together, um, how you behave together so that you can achieve your mission, right? Uh, it is really what culture is, right? And so very often organizations let it happen, you know, especially dev teams, they just say, okay, we're gonna just get some stuff built, let's do it. <laughs> it's, um, the other way to look at it is to really just sit down, take, you know, and, and constantly be working on this, but look at what you want to achieve as a team and look at what are the things or the ways of working that can help you achieve that. Uh, or what are the mindsets, ways of thinking, approaching your work that can help you achieve that. Uh, one example is, you know, um, we want to one value that I really like is we drive 10x leverage, right? This is a value that I use in my team, for example, where we say, you know, we're going to uh, deliver maximum impact with minimum effort. And that what that means is whenever I'm doing my work, I'm going to always be thinking about how do I short circuit the, this problem, right? Um, uh, what is the laziest way that I can get it done while driving the most impact? Uh, another one that I really like is, and it's really particularly important in a startup, uh, is uh, I call it building a rocket ship while flying it. Because um, you think that every startup wants to be that rocket ship. They want to be a unicorn, right? Um, what they don't realize is... Uh, we've shifted quite a bit from the age of we're going to go and build this thing and make it really beautiful, make it perfect and test it and test it and test it and theorize about it for a long time. Uh, now in this age uh, of like 
building something and releasing it very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. the, the web has made it possible for you to run software and update it at the same time, right? So really uh, embracing that, not just the dev team embracing it, but the customer service people, the customer success people, the sales people, like the concept of thinking about your product as an evolving thing versus let's wait till it's, it has this and feature and this other feature and this other feature before we can sell it. Or let's wait till it has all these features before we can introduce it to customers, right? What is the minimum viable? And then, and then how do you constantly start to update it based on feedback from your users? Mm -hmm. um, it, it's what I've noticed is the most, the, you know, the least intuitive thing about this whole aspect is what happens when you try to build a rocket ship while flying it? Things break, right? And sometimes, you know, if you're a developer in that situation and things are, you know, users are, you know, traffic is growing and things are constantly breaking because they're constantly building, you know, um, there's a point where you start to feel like your team isn't good enough, right? Like maybe we can never do it. Maybe like we're too crappy of a team. Um, but actually it's inevitable for bugs to exist in your code, especially if you're constantly, constantly tweaking it. You can't just sit, you know, sit back and go, let me not build anything because then if I build something, something will break. Right. Um, now, of course, the answer is not to always be breaking it. You're always going to build unit tests. You're always going to try to do things to prevent things from breaking. But you can't entirely rid yourself of, of uh, software issues. And the second that you understand that, then you switch your mindset into building software that is fault tolerant, building a team that is fault tolerant across your whole organization, right? How do I stop trying to chase this dream of software that has no bugs and instead chase a dream of software that is resilient, a team powering it that is even more resilient, right? Um, anyway, I get really passionate about this yeah. stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I have so many different, um, I guess, Twitter rants about this and over the years. And, and one of the things that I try to communicate, especially to senior engineers, because I don't think this bias exists so much in junior engineers is you know, don't worry about building it right. You have to build it wrong before you understand how to build it right, especially in an early stage business. And the second that you understand that your objective is not to build it right, you now have just empowered yourself. I often will say, and I think I tweeted about this recently, like I, I even go to the extreme of like embrace the bug. Those bugs, those yep. things that are, that are coming in are the data and the information that you need in order to determine what really matters about your software. And right. if you take the mindset that the requirements determine the bug, well, you're not acknowledging that the requirements are an assumption about what the user wants. So just go straight to the user. What does the user want? And I use yep. when a user communicates something to you as a bug, just embrace that and accept it. And, and in some cases, you can even just acknowledge ahead of time, I didn't build that. I know it's going to be mm -hmm. a bug. But guess what? That user is going to tell you now. I think there's this and maybe I'd love to hear what you think about this, but I feel like there's this, it's not just about building it right sometimes with engineers. Sometimes there's something that I think is more important about what they're feeling, which is 
I'm worried the user's gonna hate it. And that the user's gonna stop using it because of that bug. Mm -hmm. And understanding yeah. that the users that you want are the people who are feeling enough pain, who love it enough to get over that. You know, and this is what right. the leg on it. That right. is a hard thing for them to reconcile within their, their compromise. Yep. Do you see the same things when you're when you're going through this coaching? Absolutely. There's um, there's so much about like and the many times I've built you know built teams and built products. There's a big thing about understanding the whole concept of putting it out there early and um, getting that feedback really quickly, mm. right? Like if people love your product so much that they're willing to overcome over overlook certain bugs then you got a good product. If a tiny bug is the thing that turns them away, then you should be asking questions, really hard questions about, is this the right product? Is this really needed, right? If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? When you're, uh, when you're hungry, you're not looking for self-actualization, right? When you're hungry, you need some food. And if the food is, is not necessarily your favorite food, you're still gonna eat it. <laughs> You're really, really hungry, <laughs> right? Especially if there's no other alternatives in the market. Um, so that's uh, it's a really important concept because sometimes we use these other fluffy things like really great design, spend a lot of time on the logo and a lot of time making sure it looks snazzy, and then sometimes customers fall in love with that, and it takes them a little while to actually get behind that and think about the functionality, the need that they need to solve. Mm. And you need to shorten that time, the time it takes for you to get that same signal about is this useful or not, right? And I'm a strong believer that um, you don't necessarily leave bugs in there on purpose. It's really about getting it out there so fast that you're beating your competition to the game and then you're fixing it so fast that your customer is now also seeing you working really hard yeah. to make the product better, right? And that. that gives them a sense of yeah. exactly, yeah, exactly. I, I so it starts to agree. build on itself. The intersection of this, like you talked about culture and the way we work. I mean, one of the reasons we started CTO AI is we we kind of really believe in the core premise of DevOps is it's it's philosophies, best practices that you immortalize in tools. And the benefit of tools is it puts things on the guardrails, right? And if it's like, we agree that this is how we're gonna work, well, now I don't have to retest those assumptions and I can prioritize these other things that are more directly related to delivering that value quickly in that feedback loop. Um, does yep. that, you know, what kind of approaches do you use when it comes to the tools and how the tools set expectations or the onboarding and the training? You know, I used to have a radical, what I call the shocking rule um, or Ben Horowitz actually calls a shocking rule about everyone deploys on day one because what I was trying to set is this cultural premise that our tools mm -hmm. don't get in the way of us delivering on right. that commitment to the user. Um, how, what kind of practices do you guys use to reinforce your, your cultural commitments? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, one practice that I, I like to think about is, uh, or I, I really like to have the team reinforce and reinforce with them is whenever we can get away with not building something <laughs> let's freaking build it right um 
if we can buy something that's already been built so that we can get on with the business of actually solving our customers' problems, let's absolutely do that. We had, you know, uh, we, we had a, a debate a few weeks ago about, you know, should we build this really sexy tool um, because our developer got excited about it. It's like, yeah, let's, you know, it'd be really cool to, to get that built. And then we go, hmm, uh, haven't other people built this before? Can we just leverage that and then apply that brain power to our business logic? Um, and it's it's a really easy thing to overlook because um, once you know engineers get into it, they 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 um, it's easy to fall into the trap of let me let me build this thing because I know I can and I want to flex a little bit because you know. I'm, I'm a builder, right? I, I, you know, I feel the happiest when I build. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. And sometimes you just need to take a break and step back a little bit and go, you know, hey, do we really need to be building that piece? Or can we just very quickly deploy something that's already built? Yeah. Um, and then the other aspect of it is if, <clears throat> if, um, if I'm in DevOps, if I have a Dev DevOps team member, for example, uh, and they're constantly responding to production issues, right? Like, hey, you know, this other thing happened and I have to go deal with it manually. And, um, and that's constantly happening. You want to keep a lid on how much time your, your DevOps team spends in operations, right? You want, want to actually track it and say, what percentage of our time do we spend building uh, scalable tools that can uh, that can help us better scale in the future versus answering like manually dealing with queries or manually you know yeah, hacking together quick solutions right you want to keep a lid on that because over time it's only the things you build uh, or the tools that you're leveraging that will help you uh, that kind of minimize the you know, the time spent doing manual operations. It's sort of like a cost of ownership kind of equation that you're you're running there as you're you're listening exactly. to these feedback loops. Yeah, and we have a we have an actual like we have a meeting that we do every two weeks where we say, okay, what all issues have come up, and what are the things we need to build? Because if you let that thing happen naturally, it may not. Mm -hmm. um, so one practice we do is just we we just revisit it and look at our, our, our tickets that we answered most recently. And we say, uh, which of these do we need to build something for? Uh, and kind of post-mortem uh, our, our tickets so that we are constantly reducing that, you said, cost of ownership. So. Yeah, that's great. We run a retro process where essentially every, I think it's every week actually, we get the team to just, you know, what's going well, what's not going, it's going kind of like not so it's going okay and what's going bad. And it kind of gives mm -hmm. a broad scope of feedback to um, leadership to then say, okay, well, obviously this keeps coming up. So this is something that we need to potentially prioritize because if it's distracting people this much, the cost of ownership equation is kind of unbalancing. Um, but we sort of lean towards, well, let's do things lean, let's do things manual because you have to really, I think, figure out what is that cost of ownership tipping point for you to make those additional investments and maintain this minimalist mm -hmm. ideology about anything you build because 
you know, the less you build ultimately, in my opinion, the better in some cases, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, which maybe is counterintuitive in some ways, but I think, you know, when you're running businesses, you start to realize that any um, energy you spend in any direction could be the wrong oh, one. So high single low noise is usually what I always preach. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, but what's what's more important sometimes is is what you choose not to build right. than than what you choose to build. It, it signals to your team where their their efforts should be, and that's I mean that's really powerful. So. so along those lines, as you're thinking about you know how to guide your team, what to build, what not to build, like you know, and you're balancing this, you know, buy build, you know, the cost of ownership equation that Kyle was mentioning, how do you think about, you know, still challenging your team and keeping them, keeping them happy as far as an engineering or development team so that there are things, interesting things and interesting problems and challenges, but you had, how do you think about focusing that and motivating your team? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and it's really important, first of all, to conduct one-on-ones. Um, it's it's uh, to certain some in in this circle, it's an obvious one. It's like you know, sit down with your developers one-on-one on a weekly basis at least, and and talk to them about what they're dealing with. Um, a how how they're feeling, how they think, whether they think they're being fully harnessed for their skill set or not. Um, understand, uh, you know, whether they're blocked or not in what they're doing. Uh, make sure that they are solving problems they think are worth solving, right? Um, you know, very often we take ideas only from the product guys and the designers and, you know, uh, the engineers get left behind and they're just told to build it pulling them into the process early on is really good. So that's all like part of uh, kind of an ongoing thing, but then more of on a quarterly basis, um, there's a conversation that I like to have with the developers where I try to understand what really interests them in terms of, you know, forward looking what they want to be doing. What do they want to learn, right? Like so many, you know, the, the best engineers are always looking to learn stuff. And the ideal is to find that match between what the business needs and what your developer wants to learn, right? And you wanna always keep them at just at the edge of competency, right? Uh, you, don't, you don't want them to be doing something that they're gonna glaze over at because they've done it like 15 million times now. Um, but, and, and, and you, you always want to keep an eye for, you know, how challenged are they right now? Um, and, and throw them not too deep in the, in the deep end, but, you know, just deep enough that they're, that they're having to, you know, figure their way through things. So having that conversation, at least on a quarter, quarterly basis to say, you know, the things you're working on now, um, are they sufficiently challenging? Uh, and the things that you want to work on, how can we, how can we plan ahead so that we can be having you learn the new, uh, technologies that you're excited about, uh, whether it's as a, as a part-time project, uh, like a 20% type thing, or, 
you know, let's find ways to put you together with the things that you want to learn, right? Um, when all else fails, um, I find that there's a certain percentage, like let's say, depending on, again, on the startup, there are times when you, you're gonna look and you realize that they really want to work on certain technologies, but you're not there yet, right? You're, you don't have that um, need in the business yet. What do you do? Um, well, uh, developers can usually either grow by building more and more challenging things and learning technology, or they can um, grow by managing other developers. Some developers are excited about that. A lot of developers I've managed have always jumped at that opportunity, right? Of being able to lead a project, um, even if they're not quote unquote in the manager role, mm -hmm. um, you know, I find that whenever I can help my developers uh, imp expand their scope of what they're thinking about in terms of their work, right? They, they go from just thinking at the lowest level, thinking about, okay, it's been architected, now I'm going to code it, right? Expand it further, uh, a little bit out to say, okay, how do I architect this the right way so that it, it actually solves and scales uh, as I build and it's maintainable, it's all the good things. That's the next level of scope. The scope beyond that is how do I take a product and, you know, like a, a sprint, like a, a user story that's been, whether it's designed or what have you, and how do I take that from top to bottom, like deliver the actual build, right? That's a, that's a step up for a lot of developers. And then the, the one above that is how do I even understand the feature set I'm building? How do I understand the problem set? Uh, for the customer, actually thinking about the customer and then uh, working with your, you know, uh, your dev team members to, to curl the build, right? Just make sure they're running a scrum meeting and managing the checklist, you know, checking and adjusting to make sure we're in the deadline and so on and so forth, right? So you can see how you're, you're constantly like, there's a, always the next layer up of responsibility. Um, and when you get to that higher level where they're actually thinking about the customer needs, that is, that is a, I, I think, uh, where a lot of developers really start to shine because you are giving them a view, a perspective of the, uh, the customer problem. And again, this may be obvious to a lot of people listening, but the second that you give kind of glean and understand the customer problem, they feel more powerful. They feel more respected in their work. They feel more uh, responsible and accountable, right? And they're going to give you better a better product because of that, right? You give them that trust to say, I trust you to be able to factor in all these things um, and, and to make the right build as part of that. Uh, it might seem in some some ways that they're not attending more meetings. That's one thing you're gonna, you're gonna give up with that, right? Um, but then again, at the same time, it forces them to be more effective with their time, right? Um, that's what I found. Anyway. But, but those are some of, some of the ways that I think about, you know, helping developers constantly be maturing into the next step. Yeah, that's a really incremental um, scope too, when you think about the progression of experience. 
my view has always been that experience is relative and you know you have someone like you who has the experience of building these businesses in the past obviously at a quite large scale you have that scope of being able to see what the full forest looks like through the trees and you're trying to give them that path um, one of the things that we do is similar to you with you know product office hours we try to bring the engineers into the product discussions and bring them get them involved make sure their voices are heard and be very inclusive in that way I think there's lots you can do within that context or that kind of scope but I think one of the things that's inherently challenging in any growing organization is specifically this topic of scale and there's no more that I feel like um, you know experience is more relative than scale because you usually have it or you don't and when you have mm-hmm. it you understand all of the challenges and can look back with 2020 right. vision and go oh darn <laughs> right but when you don't yeah. you're, you're building for this unknown unknown and I think one of the challenges generally in engineering culture is like we're expected to be smart we're expected to know the answer and we often end up yep. instead of putting this imposter syndrome to the side saying this is what the best practices are based on the literature right or, or what Google says um, how do you communicate again that expectation of scale right because I think that's one of the things that people really have no understanding of we just don't understand intrinsically the law of a compounding effect um, and really right. what that means how do you think about mm-hmm. setting people up for that journey because that's when you know ultimately I've seen the cracks start to show within anybody's experience and they start to see those really true realities of okay this right. is now my horizons are really expanding and I can understand why the decisions I might have made then how they're important yeah now. yeah absolutely uh, one of the things I like to do is because uh, um, engineers that are uh, just starting out or young like kind of earlier in their careers yeah you're right tend to not have that experience the ones who do have it um, I, I like to do pairings, right? Like, you know, uh, whether it's for code reviews or for pair programming, you know, pair more junior developers with more senior developers so that, you know, uh, as you're writing, you know, as jun- more junior, uh, folks are committing their code, they're having someone look over it and say, you are that query there is gonna have an N plus one issue, right? Um, how, you know, let's think through how you can make that more effective. So uh, code reviews are really critical, a really critical way to catch a lot of scaling problems before they go out to production. Um, that's That's been the most effective I've seen anyway. Like, you know, have someone who has that experience be part of the kind of either it's pair programming code review uh, experience um and then have a what i call like a, a big part of scale in my mind is as you scale teams scale your platform uh figuring out how to build more frameworks um is a, is a really important approach for me uh even in, in your business application uh, how do you isolate things that are highly reusable uh, how do you build things in a way that they're highly uh, as reusable as, as possible and then how do you make it so that people uh, reuse it <laughs> right there's one thing for one developer to sit in the corner and go hmm you know I can build this module in a way that we can use it in the future and then when they're done building it it kind of you know gathers uh, dust 
in their own implementation of it and it never goes beyond that right so how do you develop a sharing culture where you know uh, developers are sharing with each other the things they're building to help ease you know the scaling problem over time right um, and uh, and and how do you then promote just kind of continuously promote that um, so that's another aspect for me of, of scaling you you build as much um, reusable as possible and then you have a culture of, of, of teaching you know the, the ones who know teach the others and the ones who are learning get to um, experiment uh, as they learn it uh, kind of in a safe environment with you know with maybe adapting what's been built uh, for, for the future and so on yeah safe environment I think is super key because of that that bias to like I, I need to know the answer to this I haven't done it before what if it scales and not really having a clear sense of what scale is relative to current trajectory um, I think giving right. people that opportunity to go I don't know what I don't know like please tell me right. it's so so important it's, it's so important for this growth yeah. yep and and scale is one of those things that is hard to you can you can learn a lot in theory but you don't really <laughs> you're not gonna know for real how to you know how to build for scale until you've been through scale yeah right like you chicken egg yeah and, and often yeah exactly that you can't solve until you're at scale until and, and you're you there to solve them before that so it becomes this very host of cards thing where the approach yep. I, i've always thought of is it, just be very adaptable and to your point like having that culture of learning and wanting to learn and being able to troubleshoot troubleshooting is one of the skills that, you know i, I started oh, yeah, with tech big. support and so learning how to troubleshoot and think through a problem very rapidly and work backwards based on what's the easiest way to get their internet working again is um yep. you know something that served me so well in my career because i can then quickly say okay here's the path of, of most positive impact with the least amount of effort and let's try to mm -hmm. achieve that and hopefully we solve it sooner than later um, otherwise our time investment is going to be high I think troubleshooting is one of those unappreciated skill sets often yeah. whether it comes to Absolutely. how do I build things or how do I fix them when they're at scale <laughs> right yep yep that is I mean I've seen it so many times like you know sometimes uh, engineers just just freeze right they're like ah that sounds like a ghost problem to me i don't know i don't know machine. where to even begin <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just having even the, the approach of okay let's let's start let's start somewhere let's process of elimination right like one of the you know least appreciated tricks in my book anyway Definitive um, like trigonometry or I don't know, math, like, you know, process of elimination, like order of operations. Like, I feel like people who have strong yeah. math constructs tend to look at the world in, in this way. And I think it's one of the things that we, you know, as a generally as an engineering culture out there in the industry, I think we could do better at enabling developers to find their path to, to mean time to resolution, you know, easier because mm -hmm. that's the most stressful thing that I've ever come oh, across yeah. as a software yes. is like the system's going down. Nobody knows the yep. answer. Somebody has to Nobody take a steering wheel, right? Yep, yep, absolutely. It's the the fear is the is the biggest problem, right? It's like false evidence appearing real. Like you think 
like the immediate thought is, oh yeah, this is an impossible one. Sorry, not gonna even right that right there. You just like blocked yourself from the solution versus, oh yeah, there's probably something going on that we can track down if we just try. Right. Yeah. And right there, you are instantly eighty percent of the way there, and then you just start and look at the logs or you know look at where the thing stopped or whatever. Right. Um, but the first the first step I've noticed is <laughs> we're our own biggest enemies in that sense. Yeah, right? yeah it's um, that big I, mental block. I, a quote that somebody um, gave to me in the past, a, a great guy named Charles um, Buckingham, he had this uh, general rule that he would share with engineers. He called it, be kind to your future self. And the way that I think mm -hmm. about that in this capacity are things like small incremental pull requests deployed from the feature branch so that when something breaks all i gotta do is isolate what's in the pull down. request and yep. you know and if you get into these habits of how you work well then you know in that moment when it all blows up you're gonna you're gonna thank yourself so much easier yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah that's a that's a really good point um yeah very helpful so we, we've been talking, you know, we've kind of looked at the team level. We've looked at like the company level with scaling. You were also really into like maximizing your individual self in, in, the, in the sense of a flow state. Tell us mm -hmm. a little bit about some of the things you're doing, Prosper, with, with flow state. How do you optimize your time? Yeah, no, that's huge. Um, there are a couple of like angles, you know how things, it's like Steve Jobs said that the dots will only connect later, right? So there, there were a couple of things that in my life that have happened. One is I had kids um, at, at the peak of like building uh, one of my startups. And when you have kids and, you know, they're young and they need your attention quite a bit. At the same time, you've got to build things, right? you you kind of tend to the kids start to become a forcing function right if they you, you know you get a shower of them at seven and you got 30 minutes what are you gonna do you, you gotta get that work done right so you can go do what you need to do so that's 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 one one thing that i experienced but it didn't really quite click until i ran into this this system called the pomodoro uh system and when I used the Pomodoro system, it was developed by some guy in Italy who actually hacked his own ability to concentrate. Um, and uh, it finally made sense what I was doing subconsciously when I, I was trying to, there it is, uh, when I would try to finish my work quickly so that I could you know, spend time with my kids. Um, and essentially he would set this clock uh, and you can have it ticking or not, but essentially you tell yourself, I want to do X by the end of this time block. And, you know, he, he experimented with starting at two minutes, then going to three minutes and so on. until he hit the peak of focused concentration stretch of 25 minutes. And he found that he couldn't go beyond 25 minutes. Personally, for me, it so happens 25 minutes is great as well. But what I what I've noticed, and I, I will swear by this, like I I've had so many situations where, man, I, like in my mind, I'm just it's like we talked about mentally 
blocking the problem or or, or trying to escape the problem, whether it's like a, you know an architectural problem or something I have to debug or you know or uh, just figuring out the the um, the insight that leads to a solution, a stroke of insight that we're like, oh, duh, that's what the issue is, right? I, I have had moments where I will spend hours like, you know, like stored away in my head thinking that this problem won't be solved anytime soon. And then I will sit down and give myself a Pomodoro and in 25 minutes, it's done. Like 99.9% .9 that I've set a target and said in 25 minutes, I'm going to do it. There's no deadline. Nobody's going to kill me if I don't do it. And yet somehow my mind clues into that and it goes, all right, let's get to work. Wow. And boom, 25 minutes later. I don't, I don't know if I'm the only one who experiences this. I've seen uh, my developers do this as well. Um, but I think it's real and there's something going on with our heads where forcing functions are, are really, really powerful. And then when I stretch that out, right, I noticed that it also applies with even when you're not like specifically saying, okay, here's a Pomodoro. You say, uh, you say to your dev team, okay, here's, here's a, a push we got to get out. Um, here's what we want to get done. Let's meet back here at noon. And see how far we get. Uh, let's, let's try to get it done by noon, right? Pulls in a forcing function, um, and magically, you know, you will notice more productivity when you just even set that intention to be done by X time, right? Somehow your your brain starts to, you know, pull pull the resources because it knows suddenly it has. Yeah, it feels know, the urgency uh, and now it wants to, it exactly. clicks on and it's it like, just go, right? That's like the, I, the, is creativity comes from constraint. I've heard this quite often is that, the, mm, yep. and I think the reason for that is, you know, you do get that extra focus. You're tapping into more of your concentration. And I yep. think for many kinds of problems, that's more effective. But what's interesting about this is that on the alternative, I've also seen a lot of times and experienced in my own personal experience where I actually need more passive thought to work mm -hmm. the problem out. And that might manifest in like, well, I, I've been working on this for eight hours. I'm going to go for a walk yes. and I'm going to think about yeah. something else or shower of thoughts or you wake <laughs> up in the middle of the night. You're like, I got it. Eureka. And, and like, there's something just about unlocking that um, creativity in different circumstances, I think. And sometimes it's about yes. forcing the constraint because you need yep. to just focus. And in other times it's like, you're just, you need your passive brain to be able to work through some of these data points to work through maybe the mental fog of the situation because it's dynamic. You know what? I've, I've actually, someone told me this a while ago. It uh, says that your brain can go to work when you're asleep. Yeah. And I've actually used that to my benefit many, many times where there's something bugging me and I just think about it right before I go to sleep. And I go, Here's the setup. And then I wake up with a solution, right? It's your brain is actually actively, you know, trying to figure that thing out. So you're, you're absolutely right. The passive, you know, the passive one uh, option is also a vibe. Yeah. 
thing. And it wants but to learn have, too. Uh, I mean, one of the things I've done, and this might be a little bit crazy, so I'm gonna, but I'm gonna admit it here, is you know I wanted <laughs> to develop certain habits, certain mindsets about how I thought about business, about how I was setting my goals and pursuing my goals, and build sort of discipline would be a great example. So, you know, mm -hmm. I started using sort of. Um, as I'm going to sleep, I started using this process of blocking out light, blocking out all stimulation other than just certain types of input. And usually that input would be something that would be, you know, a video or an audio track where it's specifically talking about certain types of things that I wanted to try to ingrain into my, um, oh, my yeah, my, my passive, passive consciousness or pa passive bias, mm -hmm. I don't know, whatever it is. But I, I started mm -hmm. trying to retrain certain parts of what it was and um, and to a large degree, I had a lot of luck. You know, I don't know that I got the best sleep always, but I, um, I certainly would wake up in the morning having a, a different sort of baseline premise of how I was looking at, at that problem. And, and so it wasn't even just about those short-term things that I was trying to address. There was techniques that I was trying to develop around how I could build more of that into my long-term problem solving and my long-term sort of like goal um, of how I want mm -hmm. to operate within a certain set of constraints that are maybe bigger, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know what the form um, formal psychology on any of this would be. I don't have a, yeah. a, a method or a wiki page that I can point to this. I just was curious about the, if I could achieve that, right? Just, hey, you exercise. Why can't you exercise your brain as well, right? Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think there's a book called Think and Grow Rich, right? And when I first was reading through that book, I thought this guy must be crazy. Like, you know, why is he proclaiming that we can do all these amazing things? And it was only after I finished the book and reflected on it, I realized that if you want to achieve something, at first, when you think about it, it seems foreign to you, right? So of course it's more impossible. But the more you visit that thing, the more that you just even think about it, you'll notice that over time you become more accepting of whatever the challenge is that you have to go through, right? And over time, that's that's literally what he was talking about. He was saying, you think yourself into the future that you want. It's really just giving your subconscious mind time to process and accept it and start to work its way towards a solution and you don't even have to like have powerful willpower <laughs> to yeah. to approach that it's just like a steady approach of okay now i'm going to think about it again and i'm you know just giving yourself exposure to that goal yeah. and that's why repetition really works when you think about your team like set a goal with your team and you talk about it often what do you know the team actually is starting to focus on and work towards that goal Right. So there's probably like two hours of, yeah. you know, the delaying conversation behind this one. But uh, yeah, no, that's, that's it's really interesting because, you know, you think about like lucid dreaming where you like can control your control yourself in a dream like you would in real life or, you know, other other mental models around this this kind of like programming the brain and i think it yeah it makes a lot of sense and there's probably a lot more research that could go into it uh or or even like aggregating that sort of research together so yeah. that it's you know you're you're defining that it's like visualizing you know a lot of times i think that's a common um 
tactic is like visualizing what you're about to do, visualizing mm-hmm. what you're going to say in this meeting, visualizing your presentation. Um, so there's a lot of uh, interesting factors around that. Well, Absolutely. Prosper, it's been a wonderful conversation. We're almost at the end. Uh, you know, any last thoughts? Oh, boy. Uh, um, uh, I, I would just say, uh, you know, one of the things that I find myself reminding myself of is, you know, when I set a goal, uh, I might fail many times on the way to getting there, but I, you know, uh, each failure should uh, help me, like each failure should teach me that um, I'm still the best person to achieve that goal. Um, And so it is with building a company. So it is with building a team that's trying to do something big just remember that, you know, you are still the person to do it. One failure is not going to push you away from it. Um, so you're going to have some. I love it. Drew Houston like, has a quote. Yeah. Don't worry about failure because you only have to be right once. One time. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> awesome. Thanks guys. This was yeah. awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much again. Uh, where can we find you online prosper? Oh, geez. Um, I do not have an official blog yet, but I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I uh, I do plan to start writing more, uh, but as of now, LinkedIn slash Prospermanpa, uh, whatever that LinkedIn thing is. We'll throw it into the link drop. Thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure. No worries. Thank you for having me. That's it for the op show. Take us out, Kyle.